This is the Well-Connected Twin Cities Podcast. I'm Lily Zaborowski. And I'm Alex Stahlberger. And we're here to help you feel empowered to own your well-being and discover what's possible. Tune in for conversations with local professionals as they share their inspirations, insights, and discoveries that make holistic healing possible. We're sharing the fascinating stories from within the wellness industry for health enthusiasts like you across the metro. Yoga is an ancient practice that has spread throughout the Western world over the last few decades. These days, it seems like there's yoga everywhere, and it's hard to find someone who doesn't have an idea of what yoga is. The typical perception is that it's a combination of physical poses, breathwork, and meditation, and most yoga classes incorporate all of those things on some level. Well, it's popular because it works pretty well, and it's an incredible tool for connecting the body and mind. But what happens when you don't feel safe in your body? or when your thoughts feel harmful. Today we're talking with Sandra Maurer, co-founder of Terra Firma, an organization that facilitates trauma-informed yoga sessions and trainings. She helps us understand how the brain and body process and store trauma and explains how yoga can be a powerful tool in healing. This conversation is especially relevant for yoga instructors or trauma survivors. Listen and discover what's possible with a trauma-informed approach to yoga. I'm here with Sandra Maurer of Terra Firma. Welcome to the podcast, Sandra. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so happy to have you. So I am so excited to share what you have to offer on our podcast because you're doing such incredible and interesting work around trauma-informed yoga. So I would love to hear more about what drew you into this work, what made you um, pursue this, and how did you get started? Um, well, um, my uh, co-founder and I, Angela Von Alstein, we met teaching at Healing Elements in St. Paul. Um, and I had been teaching at that time for a little over 10 years and practicing for almost 20 uh, in the yoga world in various spaces. Um, and I have a bachelor's degree in art therapy and I've worked in mental health for a while. Uh, we found that a lot of our students that were coming into classes um, were struggling with stuff coming into the room or um, were looking for yoga as a path to healing, but struggling to find their place in a traditional like American yoga setting. Uh, and we just, we were referring out to mental health providers, but we felt like we really wanted to be able to provide something more directly related to their mental health as well. Um, additionally, in my background as a doula, I had been a practicing doula for about four years um, and worked a lot with parents and birthing people um, around the birthing years and witnessed trauma in person, um, heard about it all the time and felt like that particular group of people through my prenatal yoga teaching and through my own personal experience. Um, we're really in need of a lot of embodiment practices to help with the healing um, and empowering that can, um, or disempowering that can happen around the birth process here. Um, so we, Angela and I started talking and felt like we were both having these similar experiences and went and sought out some additional training and Terra Firma was born out of that. Wonderful. So how long have you been in business for? Um, it's about three years, about three years now. Mm -hmm. 
And how did it get started? Was it weekly classes? Um, how did your class offerings kind of evolve? Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh my gosh, we, we really didn't know what we wanted to do when we started. We just saw this need and wanted to find a way to meet it more directly as opposed to just people kind of wandering into a class and being pleasantly surprised that we had some experience. Um, so we explored a lot of different avenues. We um, rented a space temporarily to try and offer yoga for anxiety. Uh, we played around with different ways to, to name it and language it that might feel accessible to people because not many folks identify as having had experienced trauma. Um, we weren't really sure. So we tried out some public stuff and eventually kind of landed on um, clinical offerings because we felt that this is really um, the way that we're doing it is really an evidence-based adjunctive treatment for mental health. And we knew that in some of these clinics that are already working with folks that are struggling, they'd be able to get access to services that they might not be able to get access to otherwise. Um, so we developed some partnerships with some treatment centers and clinics in the Twin Cities um, and have been working with them ever since. And so we do that clinical programming and then also work with individuals and offer some public groups as well. So, so interesting. So um, tell us more about what trauma-informed yoga can be helpful for. So you mentioned um, anxiety, mental health, but do you want to get a little deeper into some of the specific um, experiences or groups of people that have found a lot of healing through this modality? Yeah. Um, so trauma-informed yoga, uh, in the sense that we're defining it, is an integrated movement and mindfulness practice that really highlights adaptation over symptoms and resilience over pathology. Um, so the way we're interpreting that is we're incorporating not only incorporating understanding of how trauma affects the brain and the nervous system into yoga philosophy and asana and pranayama, the breath and the postures, um, but also as an active intervention for, for mental health. And the principles are really safety, agency, interoception, and shared authentic experience. And we can kind of get into more of those if, you're, if, if we need to explain what those are a little bit more. Um, but that's what it, the, the, the interventions that we're using are around um, those principles. And it's been demonstrated in research to be helpful for things like interoception, which is that internal state of what's happening in the body, reduced cortisol, which is that stress hormone, um, improved distress tolerance. Um, they've studied it in uh, populations where they've found uh, increase in heart rate variability, and that's the measure of stress essentially, um, how your heart rate and your breath connect or disconnect from each other. Um, they studied it in juvenile detention centers with, with eating disorders, with chronic pain, um, treatment-resistant PTSD and veterans and domestic uh, violence survivors, a number of populations it's been really useful for. Um, yeah, that was, what was the question? Was that the question? Yeah. <laughs> I so lost my train of thought there. Yeah, who it is helpful for. So let's back up a little bit. I want to get into more around your background too, because you're also studying to be a mental health therapist now, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to talk about kind of what led you to that and how that's enhancing your um, practice? Sure. 
Um, so I mentioned before that I have my bachelor's in art therapy um, from Arcadia University on the East Coast where I'm from. Uh, and I'm finishing up hopefully in the next couple months here, my master's in clinical mental health counseling at Adler um, and have been doing my clinical internship hours um, focusing uh, at Mindful Families, focusing on um, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And that's um, another population that we work with is, as terra firma, um, running groups every, every week as an inpatient and an outpatient program for perinatal mental health. Um, so I would say that especially in developing our training, the, the clinical training that I'm doing at Adler has really informed our, our practice um, and how we approach what we're doing so that we're really aiming it at being an adjunctive treatment that complements all the other treatments people might be getting, that traditional psychotherapy and talk therapy. Yeah. yeah. So what um, what's the difference that you see when people do more of the embodiment work alongside with the talk therapy. Um, how does it enhance, how does one enhance the other? So I think to explain that, I might have to get a little bit into the sciencey part of what trauma is and traumatic stress. Okay. Yeah, love it. Get nerdy. <laughs> okay. Um, so Basically, when something traumatic happens, it's just this anything that overwhelms your body and mind's ability to cope. That's going to be different for different people, right? Several people can go through the same experience, and some people are going to develop clinically significant PTSD symptoms, and some people are not. Um, it's just anything that kind of overwhelms, so it's very subjective. Um, but what happens is that the amygdala in the brain sends off these like smoke alarm. It's your fire alarm message in your brain. Uh, and when something traumatic happens or when something might be traumatic happening, it starts to let the nervous system in your body know that something is going wrong. Um, when something traumatic happens, it's then the memory gets, um, what the hippocampus does is a part of the brain is that it the, embeds the memory. So when it's traumatic, the amygdala um, miss uh, files basically that trauma that memory as being super energetically charged so super emotional very intense all these negative emotions attached to it and it bypasses the prefrontal cortex in the brain that's the part of our brain that does all the rational thinking so it's kind of a short circuit right and that's built for survival it's good if something is happening that's an emergency we need to be able to respond and react really quickly without having to think through that whole process like oh i should run i should move i should do this or that so you're probably familiar with that flight, fight, or freeze response. That's what that is. So it signals, it signals in your nervous system that your heart rate should go up and your breath should become shallow. And you need to move your feet and your hands. Um, there's, uh, it decreases digestion. All of that stuff happens automatically without us even thinking it through. So when we try to talk through a traumatic experience in a talk therapy way and think about cognitive behavioral approaches, um, we're missing this whole piece that's getting embedded in the nervous system. So what happens when we start to incorporate mindfulness and particularly trauma-sensitive mindfulness is that we are um, able to bring back that prefrontal cortex activity. So we're able to become aware of what's happening without it becoming an overwhelming experience. Um, right, so the 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 incorporating those body movements, incorporating the breath, incorporating that mindfulness helps us to then be able to tolerate maybe a cognitive behavioral intervention that we couldn't really get to before because this part of our brain wasn't really on board. Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. So powerful. I think I, I think I explained that through all yeah. the pieces that I wanted to get to. Absolutely. Um, so for people that maybe have been to a, yo a traditional yoga studio, or not a traditional, I would say, just like a typical yoga studio. Yeah. Um, if someone's tried yoga before and they've felt like it's not for them, um, maybe they didn't actually think, oh, the, I don't feel safe here, but maybe what are some ways that people may be expressing that feeling of not feeling safe, but not being able to recognize it? Does that make sense? Like, and maybe I'm asking more about what's the difference between a <laughs> yoga studio and a trauma-informed yoga class? Right. Um, well, I would say um, the difference in kind of a, a brief way is that trauma-informed yoga is non-hierarchical and inclusive and adaptive. Okay. We're also treatment focused, right? But the, the power is constantly handed back to participants. So instead of me as the teacher being the expert that I'm handing down instruction in this inherent position of power, um, we think of ourselves as facilitators and we're constantly referring clients back to their own experience for reference instead of us as reference. Mm -hmm. um, there, you might hear language in yoga studios like the full expression of the pose or if you can't do that, do this, um, if there's even those kinds of options, right? There's often an unspoken kind of competitive experience happening, or there's the sense that there's a particular type of clothing or um, size or skin color or whatever it is that's welcome, not as an over expression, no one's saying it written anywhere, but there's just not that presence there. Um, so many folks just feel like, or maybe they have limited mobility, uh, emotionally or physically, um, and they've seen on, on social media really stretchy people in particular yoga clothes, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that they don't identify with that type of person and they feel like, well, then it's just, I'm not even gonna go and explore that. So it's a really different approach um, and we're really focusing on that arousal, right? That hyper and hypo arousal, we're really looking for um, ways to help people self-regulate. So it's really focused on the participant and that's a little bit different than um, a typical yoga studio would, would feel like. Yeah. Can you talk a little more about the language you use too? Um, sure. The alternate alternatives to certain language that you hear? Sure. Um, and I think this is sometimes a little bit confusing because when we start talking about changing language, uh, I think that can feel overwhelming for people who are teachers or who have been in the yoga world. Uh, and it can feel like nitpicky, like, oh, I'm going to say the wrong word. Um, and we can start to feel like trauma survivors and folks are fragile and we don't want to be triggering. But the truth is trauma survivors are incredibly strong. Um, we're just trying to increase a sense of safety and, um, and signify with the words that what we're experiencing and what we think isn't important, right? So that's really all we're doing. I'm handing over the power. So we use invitational language. So we use expressions like um, consider or you might choose to or explore. Um, instead of more directive language. And like I've already said, the, the hierarchy. So we're not going to say things like, um, you know, this is the pose or the full expression of the pose. And if you can't do that, use a bunch of these graphs, right? We might language it, say, um, 
let's move towards um, exploring some motion in the spine. You might choose to use a block to support yourself as you do this. You might choose to move your arm or leave the arm resting. So just give a number of options that don't have any indicator that one is better than the other because they're not. Right, yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about like yoga myth busting because I feel like there's a lot, a lot of um, perceptions or preconceived notions about what yoga is and who yoga is for. Is there anything that you want to like myth bust, get out of the way, anything you wish that more people knew about yoga? Thinking about people specifically who maybe haven't tried it or have tried, you know, one studio and just didn't have a great experience. Yeah, I mean, working in a number of different clinical settings, I've run into and worked with a lot of folks from a lot of different backgrounds. Um, there is really a sense of it being um, a practice for white women of a certain body size uh, in the right particular clothes. Um, it, there's also a sense that it might be religious in some way. Yoga is a lifestyle practice that's supportive of spiritual practices, but certainly not religious. Um, and I've spent some time exploring that with folks too. There are a number of people who could probably speak to this much better, um, such as like Diane Bondi and Amber Carnes, who are talking about yoga for all. Um, and there's a number of, uh, and a number of, of yoga teachers and as well as researchers that are looking at, um, that are, are interested in this work and doing this work uh, related to um, cultural appropriation of yoga and all that stuff that's inherently present um, in a number of, of typical yoga spaces that I think needs to continually be addressed, especially as a white person teaching um, in the tradition of, of yoga. So I think that there is a lot out there that people are doing a lot of good work to change um but it still it still exists and there's still kind of limited understanding of, of who it's for and it's really for everybody yeah absolutely um so let's talk a little bit more about what constitutes trauma mm -hmm. and who is this practice for how can it help different levels on the spectrum of trauma and how it's experienced yeah um so we talked a little bit about the traumatic experience that have like what that physiological experiences in the brain and the autonomic nervous system. Um, there are a lot of different types of trauma. I think that we're learning more about that all the time. Um, many people think of trauma as being just clinical PTSD and being related to veterans, but there is racialized trauma, institutional trauma, childhood trauma, intergenerational trauma. We know that trauma gets passed down genetically through um, many generations of folks. There's also secondary trauma. So if you're working with people who are experiencing trauma or you've witnessed trauma, you'll have similar experiences in your nervous system. Um, so there's not really, um, there is of course clear diagnosis in the DSM for PTSD diagnosis, but outside of that, there's lots of traumatic stress um, that can be experienced at a, at a spectrum of, of, of levels. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about intergenerational trauma for anyone who's not familiar with that field of study? What, what does that mean? Yeah, I'm not an expert in this area. Um, so my understanding of that is uh, it's basically epigenetics. So that um, 
for example, they've studied uh, grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, and they showed, um, you know, a higher rate of, I believe it was, uh, risk of schizophrenia, and I, I think heart conditions, a couple of other things. And that's not the only group that they've studied. And but that was the group of people that didn't, what they had, uh, you know, qualify as a traumatic experience in their lifetime. So something that happens um, to the nervous system can get passed down genetically um, through family. Um, so if we think about that on big levels, right, people of color that live in this country and have had multiple generations of traumatic experiences, that's living in the, the bodies of their, their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Yeah. I know we've talked about this a little bit um, in our pre-interview, but about the embodied trauma around um, just racial trauma of the past being passed down in the work of Resma Memkeem. Mm -hmm. so yeah, he's doing some really great work. His book, My Grandmother's Pants, is a really great place to start if you're interested in understanding how um, culture and trauma and um, white body supremacy uh, are a part of what's happening nationally um, right now. And he really advocates for a healing of the body and the nervous system as, a, as a, the path for us to kind of heal the racial wounds that live with us every day in the U.S. Yeah, so interesting. We'll link that in the show notes so that people have that as a reference. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so tell us more about this work. We talked about this a little bit already, but the difference between um, you know, talk therapy and holding space as a facilitator of trauma-informed yoga. Um, what, what results have you seen from those two different modalities? And, and what, is it, what does it look like for people? Like, what does healing look like in each of those spaces? Yeah, they're really different. Um, and living in those, those two worlds as a provider, I can feel the, the difference. Um, where I'm facilitating a group or an individual session, I'm guiding. So there's a lot more of me talking, <laughs> which is often, at least for an extrovert like me, a more comfortable space than to be in a place where I'm listening more and taking on more of that. Um, there's a co-regulation piece that happens in both settings, right? I'm holding space in both places to allow for safety um, and increase that sense of safety to the, to the degree that I'm able to. Um, but it, it feels really different and it looks really different. Both, um, both are participant-led, right? Clients leading therapy most of the time. Um, it's always in trauma-informed yoga. Um, but it's, it's a different sense um, for, for the facilitator. And I think there's a, both include skills um, that look a little bit different in each space. Um, but in, in talk therapy, there is a lot more cognitive um, focus, even if you're not a cognitive behavioral therapist, right? So there's just a lot more emphasis on thought and view. Um, and there's, not, there's no talk happening really in a trauma-informed yoga space. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, we're avoiding that, right? We're trying to really access the primal brain and the nervous system. So we're trying to get into nonverbal space, which is where a lot of trauma is anyway. So they work really well together in that if I've done this trauma-informed yoga work, I've moved towards regulation, I can now tolerate distress a little bit, um, or I've increased my window of tolerance, which I can talk about in a second. 
now I'm able to get access to my reasoning brain and notice my thoughts a little bit easier or maybe actively change them. So it, it gives opportunity to engage and respond with sensations and feelings instead of feeling overwhelmed. Your question about what kind of results do people see, like what are some of the things that we've experienced in the research that um, the window of tolerance is a really big one. And what that is, um, is if you can kind of imagine this little, like these two lines, there's this space. Um, and in this space, we kind of all go through different levels of arousal during the day. I'm really excited. I just had some coffee. I'm awake. I'm kind of alert. Um, something exciting is happening. Or I'm really tired. I'm at the end of my day or whatever. We kind of go in between these. With the experience of trauma and really even with the experience of depression and anxiety, to some degree, we get pushed out of that window of tolerance, either above in a hyperarousal state or below in a hypoarousal state. And below is like lethargy and feelings of inertia and having um, difficulty noticing things, sense of being numb. Hyperarousal is kind of the opposite, agitated, difficulty sitting still, hypervigilant, I'm aware of what everything is happening around me to when you feel like you're in danger, right? Noticing all that kind of stuff, increased heart rate, all of that. So we get kind of pushed out of that. What the biggest thing that trauma-informed and mindfulness does is increase our ability to regulate and come back into that window of tolerance. Um, and that allows us to be able to incorporate other things and other interventions better. Um, and we found what's interesting about the research, a lot of things are, but one of the things is that effects will last longer than the actual intervention. So a lot of the research is on like 10 and 12 week programs um, and they will study them again months later and participants are still showing an increased distress tolerance, increased heart rate variability, um, you know, improved uh, prefrontal cortex activity, all that stuff still seems to be improved. That's so interesting and, and really awesome. Um, so how do you know that it's working? What do you see in people in your classes or clients that you're working with one-on-one -on -one, um, to let you know that it's working and does it look different for different people? Yeah, uh, such a good question. And um, we talked about how most of the work is invisible, right? So if it's nonverbal, if it's happening internally, I can't really see or assess who's having a, an experience that's helpful or not. Um, and oftentimes the beginning is harder rather than easier for folks. Um, so I, I can't really know. And I did find a parallel in this work um, as a facilitator that I did to my work as a doula, when um, clients that I would feel like I wasn't after actively doing anything with, um, and I would just sit there and kind of nod and smile and normalize the process, um, would be the ones that would come up, up to me later and tell me that they couldn't have done it, you know, without me being there. I, I found the same thing happening as a facilitator here is that often it's the clients who might not be outwardly participating in a way that I can see um, in a group um, that might be getting the most benefit out of it. There's an internal experience happening um, that I can't really quantify on the outside as the facilitator. Um, and because so much of that's going back to them and we're not really processing it, we're not really getting into that part of the brain, we're really trying to stay in that nonverbal place, um, they just experience it. Sometimes they'll even tell me, I don't know how to describe it. And that makes so much sense, right? Because there's just something happening at a nervous system level that's outside of our ability to language it. Mm -hmm. Clients will tell me that they often feel, um, and this is upheld by the research as well, that they'll feel less reactive. So if we think about um, 
that window of tolerance and being able to stay within that more, um, then they have a little bit more sense of agency over the uh, feelings, sensations that they're having in the body. They can respond to them instead of feeling like they have to be overwhelmed by it or have to jump into that cycle of being on high alert, that amygdala is firing, but they're able to pause and reflect on it and get a little bit more space over time. Yeah, wonderful. So let's talk about how people can work with you. You mentioned that you run programs um, in different clinical settings, but I know you also have a weekly class. Um, you do one-on-ones. So tell us about all of the different ways people can work with you. Yeah. Um, right, we have those clinical groups, uh, and then we partner with Wild Tree Wellness at their different locations, at least we did pre-pandemic, um, to offer public groups and individual sessions. Now that's all virtual. Um, every Tuesday morning, we have a public trauma-informed yoga group that folks are able to um, register for online and jump in uh, at any time. That's every week. We do individual sessions that are by appointment online, um, and then we also have a training for providers that uh, we're running again um, in the fall and that's now also online. <laughs> Everything's online right now. <laughs> yeah and you know I want to mention that um, I at first had some hesitancy about how we might do this work online and create that sense of stability and safety in the room um, but when I gave folks the option to turn off their video so that I wasn't necessarily watching them or they didn't feel watched, it actually added this layer of safety because they're in their own space. You get to be in your own room at home and explore what, whatever it is we're going through. Um, so in a way, there is this, this little benefit to that. So um, yeah, so it's a, it's a really interesting experience, but that's how we're doing stuff online right now. Yeah, wonderful. So people can find links to those classes or one-on-one -on -one sessions on your website? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then let's talk a little bit more about your training that you're offering for providers. Have you done this before? What, is, what does that look like? Yeah, well, I love teaching teachers. I was a part of teacher training programs um, for just regular 200-hour stuff. So we knew we always wanted to do some training, and we kept getting questions from providers um, about training for them. And we do on, some on-site stuff for, for clinics, like we've done staff retreat days, we've done presentations for like the women in psychology uh, conference, you know, various presentations, but we decided to run a 30-hour training for both yoga teachers and clinicians who wanted to um, gain a foundational understanding of how trauma-informed yoga works and ways that they might be able to incorporate it into the work that they're already doing. And it was supposed to be in person in March, and so of course that was uh, canceled. And we moved it to an online um, platform. And I actually think it's gone really well. We just finished it up, so I haven't gotten all my feedback yet from all the participants. But um, I think so far, so good. And um, really what it does is provide that foundational information and a framework for, for the work that you might already be doing. We do look a little bit at treatment planning with yoga. Um, but the, our training is really clinically focused and healing-centered. So we're really... Um, trying to give people the ability to find ways to use it as an intervention with their clients. So cool. So your next one is this fall, right? Yes. Yeah. And I think um, just to add this little side note, um, I think a lot of folks 
think of mindfulness as kind of a neutral, like yoga as kind of a neutral intervention, right? Like, oh great, I know some mindfulness. I can just teach it to whomever and it's gonna be fine. Um, but there really, there are some contraindications. Um, and if we just, for example, if we thought about all those experiences that people with trauma are having in their bodies, it feels totally unsafe. So if you were to ask somebody, for example, to come into a yoga room and sit down and close your eyes and focus on your breathing, we're asking them to do something that's not only terrifying, but also um, harmful, right? It's not helpful anymore. Um, so having this trauma information, even if you don't go out and teach, let's say a trauma-informed yoga group is really helpful because something, some estimates say like 70% of Americans have experienced one traumatic event in their life. And eight to 20% of them will develop full-blown PTSD, right? So somebody's coming into your yoga room if you're a yoga teacher that's experienced trauma. So having some sense of what that might look like and helping point clients to or students to some resources or preparing them for um, what might be happening for them is going to be really, really essential if we want people to be able to continue to feel like they might be welcome in the yoga studio space or to continue the practice in some way that's useful for them. Yeah. Do you have any um, tips for yoga teachers on how to recognize when this might be happening in their classes? Any like body language, if people aren't actually hearing the words from their students, but they're seeing something that might be um, indicating someone's experiencing trauma in their body? Oh my goodness, I could teach a whole class on this yeah. alone. Um, <laughs> it's a really good question. I think there's some good um, books to, to look at. So teaching trauma-sensitive yoga uh, and trauma-sensitive mindfulness would be really good resources as a teacher to start to read through and look at. Um, but if you have students that maybe get up and leave uh, in the middle of a class, uh, who have a hard time closing their eyes, um, who seem really fidgety, whose breath is shallow, whose movements are restricted, um, you know, there's the, those are some of the some of the signals that somebody's feeling. Also, you might get that sense uh, you, people will actively dissociate. So if there's something that happens that's overwhelming to your nervous system, one of the body safety responses is to dissociate, where you disconnect mind and body. It's like when somebody's kind of out of you can see that they're not present, like they've gone somewhere else, or you might think of a flashback where someone actively is living in their brain in some other moment in time. That can happen a lot for folks in a, in a yoga classroom or anything that's asking them to kind of start to notice those sensations. Um, if you're not really familiar with the symptoms of dissociation because you're not a clinician and you're teaching yoga, uh, it's just something to, to think about might be happening and to provide some space or maybe even just let your students know that they're welcome to leave at any time to check in with you if they need something and you're help, welcome or you're able to give them some some direction to other resources if you're not you know qualified to do that yeah absolutely mm -hmm. well thank you so much mm -hmm. Sandra. this was just so much incredible information i really appreciate your time and sharing with our community about your area of expertise thank you so much for having me i hope i explained it all well i appreciate the time <laughs> yeah, you did absolutely You've listened to another episode of the Well-Connected Twin Cities podcast. We regularly sit down with our local wellness professionals and get the inside scoop into what makes holistic healing possible. Check out our events page at wellconnectedtwincities.com and look for the next Thrive Thursday. Subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. Take a screenshot and tag us on Instagram at Well Connected Twin Cities so we can say thank you.